Thank you for joining us for this episode of the IPI Policy Basics Podcast. Today's topic is why right to repair is a Trojan horse and a threat to U.S. innovation. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. With these IPI Policy Basics podcasts, we're building an audio library on basic policy concepts and topics for those who want to learn and understand how to think about policy from a free market perspective or who need to get up to speed on a particular issue. Today, we're going to discuss the importance of intellectual property protection and the problem of right to repair legislation with the help of our resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews. So for about a decade now, we've been seeing these various what are called right to repair initiatives that have cropped up at the state level and also at the federal level. It started off with the idea of the right to repair your car. Now, let's just talk about this phrase right to repair for a moment. Uh, you know, it strikes me as if you heard something about the right to repair, you think, well, duh, of course I have the right to repair something if something goes wrong around my house or whatever. But what this is specifically talking about is the right to access patented and proprietary information in high-tech products. Now, I think we all understand that 20 years ago, an, an average sort of shade tree mechanic knew how to rebuild an engine or rebuild a carburetor or do a tune-up or do a brake job or whatever needed to be done because cars were a lot simpler back then. But today, of course, cars are loaded with technology. In fact, an article in Car and Driver magazine says that 40% of the cost of a new car is in the computer technology rather than just the iron and steel and rubber that makes up a car. A, a typical mid-priced car today has 50 or more microprocessors. These are microcomputers and sensors and things like that that are processing innovation, adjusting the engine, adjusting the fuel mix, adjusting the brakes, and all sorts of things. Luxury cars, cars that have some of these very advanced features like uh, blind spot detection and intelligent cruise control and lane assist and things like that, might have over 100 microprocessors in the car. And Tom, this is one of the real changes in our lives, isn't it? Because most of us who are males at some time, especially when we were younger, if something went wrong with our car, as it often did, we'd go and look under the hood, even if we didn't know what we were doing. Right. But that's what men did. Right. But, you, but you, I mean, you could change the oil, right? You, you could change the oil. You could change the spark plugs at times. Mm, yep. You could sometimes adjust what was called a carburetor back then. Right. You could do various things, and you or you could take it to a mechanic if you didn't want to pay uh, the dealership prices to work on these cars. But now when I when I pull the lid up on my car, it's covered by a big plate, and I can't tell anything there, and I wouldn't touch it. And, you know, we start off with the example of cars because I think everyone understands this point when you're making it about cars. But this kind of advanced intelligence has been added into lots of products today, lots of consumer products, not just cars and things like that. So what happened with cars was that your, your independent mechanics, your shade tree mechanics, they were presented with a problem, which is that if you want to continue to service these advanced cars, you're going to have to get advanced training. You're going to have to buy proprietary diagnostic equipment that comes from the manufacturers. You're going to have to get certified by the manufacturer. 
et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of them didn't want to have to do that. A lot of them resented it. A lot of them, frankly, did not want to have to make the capital investment that was necessary to do that. But what happened is this this problem sort of became hijacked by a philosophical movement out there. There's a There are people out there and there are organizations out there that really don't believe in the idea of patents and intellectual property. And a lot of this intelligence, these chips, the way these chips are designed, the way that they work, the way these microprocessors are tuned, are all covered by patents. It's patented software. It's patented hardware and chip design, patented systems, the way these, these systems are networked together within the car, the way the car senses its environment. These are all covered by intellectual property protections, by patents and things like that. And the reason for patents and the reason for intellectual property protection is to encourage this exact kind of innovation. Because why would an automobile manufacturer uh, make the huge investment of financial capital and, and human capital to design these systems if someone could just come along and copy them and rip them off and put them in their cars? So at a very fundamental level, we allow inventors, we allow innovators to protect their innovations for for periods of time in order to incentivize them to create things. But there are people who don't like that system. They think there's something wrong with the idea that innovation and knowledge is, you know, quote unquote, kept away from society uh, for a limited amount of time during the patent. And so the first wave of these right to repair laws at the state level was about automobiles. And it was a demand that the manufacturers be forced to make public this patented information, the design of these systems, the way these systems work together, it was a demand that that information be released and not held to be proprietary. And in defense of the manufacturers, if you had somebody who isn't trained going in and doing things uh, in there, they could end up making errors in the software, I would think. Oh, absolutely. Such, such that if your brakes are, are dependent in part upon the software and the car, uh, you, you're in an accident, the car didn't stop, and you had taken it to a shade tree mechanic beforehand, does that mean the warranty? Does that mean the manufacturer is at fault or if somebody has gotten in there? So I would argue that a, a huge part of the warranty is the fact that the manufacturers are standing behind their product because they're the only ones who are going to be able to assert that the computer aspects of this, the software and so forth, is all done properly. If you have somebody else doing it, the warranty may not be good anymore. Uh, you've identified the the second and critical reason why this right to repair stuff is problematic, right? It's co essentially consumer safety, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not simply the intellectual property protection. It's not simply that sort of incentive to innovate. But yes, I mean, you don't want somebody hacking their anti-lock brake system, because what happens if the car crashes and somebody's injured, they're still going to sue the manufacturer, you know? I mean, you were talking about the warranty, but to say nothing of lawsuits and legal mm -hmm. liability and things like that. So yes, when, when, you, when you take a car moving down the highway at 75 miles an hour, and it's dependent on all of these high-tech systems, you don't want people hacking into them and messing around with them and saying, see if I can tweak this to make it work a little bit differently. So there are, there are two really major reasons why right to repair is a bad idea. The first is, is undermining the intellectual property system, and the second is this, is this issue of consumer safety. But what has happened, of course, as we mentioned earlier, is this kind of advanced technology is in all kinds of consumer products right now, and it's just going to continue. Uh, the latest iteration of this is in the healthcare field and medical devices. Uh, very sophisticated, high-tech devices like 
like MRI machines, uh, PET scanners that are used like to scan and monitor brain waves, uh, CT scanners, uh, even sonograms and advanced equipment like that. Uh, this kind of advanced medical equipment, the manufacturers only allow manufacturer authorized service technicians to work on it. They have to be trained, they have to be certified. Uh, only those kinds of technicians have access to the repair manuals and things like that to allow them to dig into it. And even the factory authorized service people don't have access to the details of, of, of how the software is written, you know, the, the code, the base code, uh, the way the chips are designed. Even the authorized technicians don't have the ability to get to that kind of information. And so now what you have in state after state, including our home state here of Texas, you have bills before the, the state legislature that demand the right to repair for those kind of medical devices in Texas right now. There's a bill before the legislature called the Medical Device Right to Repair Act, and it would insist on what we just described, the disclosures of this kind of information, so that, so that if a hospital or a doctor wanted to hire a cheaper service guy to come in and service their MRI machine or whatever, they could do it. Now, obviously, we're opposed to this for both the two reasons that we talked about with regard to automobiles, right? You have the, the problem of the violation of the intellectual property, and you also have the problem of possible danger to patients. Now, I don't know enough about MRI scanners. I know they have huge, gigantic, whirling magnets in them. And so if somebody hacked into one of those, could it harm a patient directly? Could it explode? Could it emit too much magnetism? I don't know the answer to that. But I do know that if you let somebody work on the machine and they messed it up somehow, you might have an MRI scan and you might have a mass of troubling tissue somewhere in your body, and the scan might not pick it up mm -hmm. if, it had been, if it had been messed with by somebody who didn't know what they were doing. So there might be a direct danger to patient safety. There might certainly be an indirect danger to patient safety because of bad diagnostics. Even if you said we've got somebody who's here and is able to repair this, and even if the person does do a good job but something were to occur, uh, you, it would be hard to say that it was not that person and uh, the, the repair person doing that. Mm -hmm. And so you'd, you would never be completely sure, and there would be no chain of responsibility if some, or at least it would be hard to determine the chain of responsibility, right. whether it's the manufacturer, the doctor who's looking at, say, the PET scan or the, the CT scan, or the repair person who didn't, who may or may not have known what he or she was doing. That's exactly right. Now, one huge difference between medical devices and like automobiles is that medical devices are regulated by the FDA, by the Food and Drug Administration. And the FDA has policies and regulations in place to make sure that that sort of what I think what you just called the chain of responsibility or <laughs> chain of accountability to make sure that that's a known thing. So that if something if someone is a, if a patient is harmed or something like that. You can go back and you can check the records and make sure that the equipment was managed properly. The FDA requires the manufacturers of these medical devices to promptly apply software patches and software updates. If, if they realize there's a problem with the device, they're required to promptly address the problem, just as the FAA requires airlines to promptly address maintenance problems with jets and things like that. That whole chain of responsibility gets broken up and interfered with if you start letting just like third-party, unauthorized, or uncertified repair people start messing with this equipment. So patient safety, the safety of passengers in automobiles, the safety of, of consumers who use any of this kind of advanced equipment that has advanced intelligence in it, 
uh, it can be endangered by these right to repair types of laws. But I want to return to the intellectual property point because I think really that's really the, the, the most important and sort of that, that's where this really sort of cuts on a policy standpoint. Because you can even get to simpler things where there is no safety issue. For instance, a few years ago, uh, it was the Sony company. The Sony company made this little pet robotic dog, mm-hmm. right? And this little pet robotic dog could do all sorts of fun, entertaining things. Well, the first thing that young computer savvy hacker types figured out is, oh, I bet I could make this dog do all kinds of things. I bet I could make this dog do funny things. I bet I could make this dog do obscene things. I bet I could program this dog to walk up to somebody and hump their leg, you know, something like that. And that's what they wanted to do. They wanted the right to be able to get in here and hack this thing. And Sony wouldn't let them do it. Mm -hmm. Sony would not release the code. They wouldn't release the information about how the software on the chips worked. And and the the hobbyists were saying, oh, that's well, why are you being such a party pooper? That's no fun. Let us do what we want to do. And Sony's point was, this is our intellectual property. This is our patented technology. We did something here nobody else is able to do, and we're not going to disclose it any sooner than the law requires us to do. And that's their right. So from an intellectual property standpoint, the question comes up, would Sony have put the trouble into designing that product if they knew that the day after it came out, some other company was going to be able to immediately rip it off and produce a clone of the thing because they had access to all the technical details and that sort of a thing. Mm -hmm. So there really is very good reason and very good justification for why in these consumer products, the companies don't just open source everything and say, okay, okay, we've just put out this new product a week ago, and now we're going to give you all the technical details, all the blueprints, all the software, so you can go out and reproduce it yourself. There's a good reason for that. So it's a real cost, it's a real uh, danger, and it's a real threat to innovation because you would be taking away the incentives that inventors and manufacturers have to come up with this cutting-edge technology and implant it in consumer devices. It's not unlike the issue that came up years ago with like music CDs and people would buy a music CD and they would say, I don't understand why I can't just make copies of this music CD. Well, you bought the physical CD, you bought the medium, but you don't own the music that's on the CD that is licensed to you by the intellectual property holder. And so no, just because you own a consumer product, it doesn't mean you have a right to all of the technology and innovation and, and intelligence that is built into that consumer product. So, Tom, what about cybersecurity, since that's an issue that everyone is talking about now? That is a really good point, because, you know, we're already worried about uh, bad foreign actors like Russia and China hacking into our systems and stealing our technology. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't want Chinese hackers stealing the advanced medical device technology from American innovators and American technology companies and figuring how to steal General Electric's technology for PET scanners and things like that. And that's one of the big claims against China from American companies is they've lost a lot of their intellectual property to China because they were able to take it. That's exactly right. So I I think there's two angles to the cybersecurity angle. The first is that sort of the theft of intellectual property, Mm -hmm. the stealing of innovation uh, in, in our global competition with China. But again, the other cybersecurity angle here is sabotage, I think. I mean, we don't want foreign bad actors to say, hey, we have figured out a new way to hurt the United States. We're going to wreck all their C- all, all their PET scanners and M- all their MRI scanners, and we're going to sabotage all their sonogram machines. Now, that may sound silly, but 
We have things like this going on all the time. We know that there have been foreign attempts to sabotage the electrical grid mm -hmm. and electrical generators and things like that. We know that our broadband companies and ISPs are constantly fighting off attacks from, from foreign hackers to try to bring down our communication system. So is it too much to imagine that a foreign hacker might try to burn up all the all the CAT scanners in the United States? I don't think that's outside the realm of possibility. There's also the accusations that foreign countries tried to influence the election, and there were accusations, I don't think they ended up being proven, that they tried. To, they were able to get into the election, election process to the voting machines in some way or the other. So uh, the threat out there is out there whether we don't know exactly how real it is, but it's certainly out there. That's a really great point. If you're all worked up and worried about foreigners hacking into our voting machines, shouldn't you be more concerned about them hacking into our CT scanners and <laughs> MRI machines and, and things like that? So yeah, that, that's a terrific point. So to conclude, um, Right to repair sounds like a sympathetic idea. It sounds like something that is only reasonable, but it's really sort of a wolf in sheep's clothing. It's not really being pushed by your small independent repair businesses. It's really being pushed by ideological firms, public interest law firms, and anti-intellectual property activists who are simply using this as another way to undermine the idea of the ownership of inventions and the ownership of innovation. State legislatures really need to be careful to resist these seemingly reasonable legislative proposals. They would be making a terrible mistake by falling for this bait and switch. They would be risking the health of patients and opening up the medical device industry to dangerous and unfair cybersecurity vulnerabilities in the process. You can find a lot more about intellectual property policy and healthcare policy at our website at ipi.org. If you've enjoyed this Policy Basics podcast, tell other folks about this library of Policy Basics topics that we're building up here at IPI. And we would also appreciate it if you would give us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.